Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading can be found on page 999 of the Church Bibles and is Matthew chapter 27, verse, verse 32 to the end of the chapter. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and peered to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out from the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. 
This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we stand. Lord, as we come to your word this night, would you please make these words live for us? Would you show us ourselves and show us our saviour? Speak to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit. Teach us afresh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And as you're taking your seats, perhaps you'd like to find your Bibles once again. Page 999, this is Matthew chapter 27. And the other thing you might like to be digging out from amongst your bits of paper is this little outline here, uh, which uh, shows us where we're off to this evening. If that's helpful for you, uh, then uh, you could find that. That'll help as we look through tonight. And I should say, uh, as we're here, uh, thanks to Paul very much for your welcome here this evening. It's a great privilege for me and for us to be over here. And uh, so thanks very much for having us. Well, I wonder what you've been making of all this trouble over in Cyprus. You know, the longest bank holiday in history. The bank's all locked up. You can't get your money, even if you want it. They stand, don't they, at the edge of a a massive precipice, a massive mountain of debt, eye-watering amounts of money. Now, you know, the national debt in that country uh, worked out uh, per head. It's something like 100,000 euros for every man, woman and child. It's eye-watering, isn't it? And, of course, the question before the European finance ministers, as they have their little chat this evening, who's going to pay Who's going to pick up the tab? Who's going to bail them out? Because you see, if someone doesn't pay, well then the economy is going to go down the tubes. It'll be sunk. If you're living in Cyprus, it doesn't bear thinking about, does it? Surely someone's going to step in. Well, maybe. Maybe not. Tonight, here in chapter 27 of Matthew's book, well, we're confronted with another mountain of debt. Not national debt this time, this is personal, very personal. As we look at the cross, we're confronted with the eye-watering debt of sin, the cost of our rebellion against God. But we also see God's answer to that mess, God's king here on the cross and the greatest bailout in history. I wonder what you see as you look at that cross Because Matthew wants to take us up close and personal. He wants to confront us with it. The scene before us, it's ugly, it's hideous. We had it read in all its horrible detail. It's gruesome, it's barbaric. Roman execution, it was not neat and tidy. It's painful to watch, let alone be a part of. But Matthew wants us to meet here our king. Well, if uh, Sunday afternoons in Kilnurst, uh, we gather as a family uh, around the telly, a bit of Formula One. And uh, if you've seen the coverage over the last few years, I'm really glad it's back on again. Well, you know how they, um, they these days make use of these super slow-mos as the cars are sort of coming around on the banking. 
zoomed in on the sort of front wheel of the thing and uh, you can see, can't you, all the detail. You see the graining on the tyres. You can see the little flexing of the, uh, the wings and the end plates. See, slowing things down a little bit, it, it helps us, doesn't it, to see the detail. And that's what Matthew wants to do here. He's slowing it down. He's homing in. And as he uncovers the details, so we begin to understand some of the meaning. And we wonder again at this amazing rescue. Well, there are some headings on the sheet here tonight. Here's the first. Here is your saviour. Let him save you. The first thing that Matthew wants to show us at this cross, the death of Jesus is the way that God saves us. Indeed, right at the start of Matthew's book, that's how he introduces Jesus to us in the first place. The angel appearing in chapter 1 and verse 21, announcing to Joseph that Mary will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. And just in case Joseph hadn't got the message, well, the name Jesus literally means the Lord saves so right from the off, right from kickoff, we're told what Jesus will grow up to do. We're led in on his mission. He's come as one who saves. And now at the other end of his life, here we are at the cross. Matthew shows us God's saving work. And he does that in part by recalling to us the mocking that Jesus receives. First the passers-by, then the religious leaders, they're all in on the act. Have a look at verse 39 there. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Well, it's pretty angry stuff, isn't it? Come on, Jesus, show us a bit of this saving. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Save yourself. Do you notice those words? You heard words like that before. If you're the son of God. It's a bit of an echo, isn't it? Words we have heard before in Matthew's book. Those words were on the lips of Satan. At the temptation of the Lord Jesus. Way back in chapter 4. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from this temple. And now if you're the son of God... Come down from the cross. See, the words of the tempter speak through the mouths of the crowd. It should be no surprise, should it? No surprise at all. Satan is up to his old tricks, willing Jesus to just buckle. To buckle under the greatest temptation of his life. Mocking him to cave in to that pain and that torture. Satan is desperate, even now, to stop Jesus going through with his saving work. If you're the son of God, come down. Of course, the thing that Satan is trying to prevent is, uh, clarifies, doesn't it, the work that Jesus is about to do. And the religious people make that even clearer. And look at verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked Jesus. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Well, even for us as bystanders, 
It's not pleasant on the ears, is it? And notice those three little words at the top of uh, verse 41. In the same way. You see, the mocking by the religious is the same as the mocking of the passers-by. Their wills aligned with evil rather than good. And with typical irony, Matthew, uh, they, they speak better than they know, don't they? And here's the key, verse 42. He saved others, but he could not save himself. That's it, isn't it? That is Jesus' work in a nutshell. They use it to mock, but, well, we could have chiseled it into his epitaph. Do you see how that works? The way that Jesus saved others is by not saving himself from death on the cross. He could have come down. Of course he could. He'd done so many other miraculous things through his life. But he chose not to. We've sung tonight. He chose the cross. Indeed, if he had saved himself, well, then he could not have saved others. Jesus was a man on a mission in obedience to his father's instructions to save his people from their sins. And so he hangs here on this ugly cross in the place that is rightly mine and yours. And Jesus goes down, down into death and hell to save us from that terrible fate. Your saviour hangs there under the weight of God's anger at your sin. Here is Jesus saving people by refusing to save himself. Within this book, Scandalous, by John Carson, well, Carson points out that uh, there was a moral imperative here. It wasn't actually the nails that held Jesus to the cross, but a much bigger reason why he must go through with this ghastly ordeal, simply because it was what his father required of him. This is his mission. Here is the son in perfect obedience. So the tempter is wasting his breath. Jesus' resolve is absolute. He will not come down. He must obey the one who sent him. Yet not my will, but yours be done, he said. And so he did save others, and by saving others, he could not save himself. And as we look at the cross tonight, we're reminded, aren't we? Here is your saviour. And so the question is, will you let him save you? Because if the hideous cross tells us anything tonight, it's that Jesus is my only hope in the face of my rebellion and sin. The debts are too big. The deficit is too large. There's no other way to deal with it. There are no quick fixes, no instant cures. No trying hard, no working hard, no saving up. It's just not going to cut it. Jesus is the only way. And so can I urge you, if you've not done already, to ditch any notion whatsoever that somehow you can save yourself. Or put it the other way, if you're not trusting Jesus with your eternal future, then if I can put it bluntly, you remain unsaved. But you see tonight, Jesus, through Matthew, shows you your sin, but he shows you your saviour. The question remains, will you let him save you? 
If you've already come to the cross to let Jesus save you, well, that's absolutely great. You certainly, uh, even so, know some other unsaved people. Here's the thing, they won't be saved until someone brings them here to this cross. Someone needs to bring them to Jesus. My sin means I need saving. The cross tells me I cannot save myself. And so any attempt to go it alone would be a huge mistake. It would be an insult to my saviour. Because Jesus is hanging there for you. If there was another way, if a less painful way, a less awful way, well, wouldn't God have willed that instead? As we look at the cross tonight, will you silence that voice in your head that says other people need this more than you? Or that really you're not that bad? Or that you could probably get there yourself, given a bit of help? Because, friends, we are that bad. We really are. Our debts are eye-watering. We all need this saviour. And without this saviour, we are lost. And so here is your saviour. Let him save you. Secondly, here is your sin-bearer. So be forgiven. The next thing that Matthew wants to show us is the, at the cross, the death of Jesus is the way that God forgives us. You see, as Jesus is crucified there, we get both the dramatic and the miraculous. This is no ordinary execution. Let's have a look down to verse 45. From the sixth hour till the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness that afternoon is no coincidence, of course, it's telling us what's happening. A sign of God's displeasure at sin, his judgment on evil. God the Father has absented himself, removed himself from this situation. All that's left is pain and darkness. Jesus underscores that in his cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22. Uh, looking forward in part to the resurrection. But Matthew focuses, doesn't he, on uh, the abandonment of Jesus, left alone. He hangs cut off and in the darkness. God forsaken, he's been separated from his father in order to bear the sins of people. Can you imagine it? The pain and torment, it must have been awful, must have been terrible. Cut off from all that is good and true and wholesome and lovely. Cut off from light and life. Cut off from everything. It's a horrible picture, but that was the reality that day. The separation that Matthew describes is the desperate fate of sinners. That God-forsaken state is where we all deserve for, for our sin. It really is that bad. I wonder if you've ever been caught having a quick uh, tidy up around the house moments before some friends arrive for a, a quick cup of coffee or a meal. You know, that rather awkward moment as the uh, doorbell rings and uh, there you are standing with uh, a duster in your hand or a bin bag tucked under your arm. And uh, I guess a lot of time, uh, a quick tidy up is all we need. Quick whiz round, a, a superficial sort of uh, uh, put a few things away. 
If you come around our house, I hope you don't have a look under the stairs, because uh, uh, that's where we put things. But you know, sometimes we get so used to this way of operating, don't we? We think we can do it with God. Do you ever do that? Have a quick tidy up uh, before God, dealing with the superficial, uh, those sins uh, that don't really matter in order that uh, he won't notice the grime and the uh, dirt underneath. Well, take another look at the cross. Feel the darkness. Hear that cry. Friends, there's nothing superficial here. Nothing in you and me that can be fixed with a quick tidy up. The Bible is clear about this, isn't it? It tells us what we're like, rotten to the core. Ephesians 2, dead in our transgressions and sins. The Bible writers aren't joking. They're not trying to scare us. Just telling us how it is. And the cross confronts us with that reality. The punishment for sin is truly awful. And yet it's the punishment we all deserve. And if there's any way whatsoever that I can avoid that, well, I'd be an absolute fool to turn it down. Of course, that's the wonderful good news of the gospel. You heard it last week here from Isaiah. My sin and your sin was laid on him. Jesus becomes our sin bearer in an act of incredible love and service. The death of Jesus provides forgiveness of sins. Or in the words of of 1 Peter 2.24, it's just on the sheet there. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you have been healed. Or again, Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, will you hand over your sin and let God forgive you? Will you leave that sin with Jesus at the cross, whatever it is? Not just the superficial stuff. Will you dig down whatever's lurking there? However you think you've let him down. He'll willingly take it from you. He'll bear it for you in his body on the tree. And so will you hand it over? Will you leave it there? That's why on this Good Friday afternoon, it's so dark around here. Because here is your sin bearer. So be forgiven. Third, here is your peacemaker. So be reconciled. And at this point in the action, Matthew sort of cuts away. Uh, to draw our attention to another event in another place, showing us that the cross makes Jesus our peacemaker. And Matthew tells us about the tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom. And it comes at that moment from, of Jesus' last breath. Uh, of course, that's no coincidence either. He's making a point. He's telling us something theological. Now, a little bit of background up to now. God has designated that beautiful temple in Jerusalem as the meeting place between God and his people. It was a bit like, uh, you know, the clock that hangs in Waterloo Station. It's the place you went to meet if you had someone special to meet. It was the rendezvous of choice. If you wanted to meet with God, well, the temple in Jerusalem, that's where you'd find him. That's where you shall go. And the temple was designed in such a way uh, that God's bit uh, was sort of right in the middle. The bit where God dwelt uh, was uh, the centre of 
that temple. And because it was in the middle, uh, it was known as the most holy place, uh, suitable for the most holy God, of course. And there were actually two curtains that hang in that temple. Uh, They both acted as large, sort of heavy uh, room dividers. They were pretty big, uh, a little bit like you might see in a sports centre these days, to sort of divide up the courts uh, so you can play different things in different places. Uh, Only these would be much bigger, much thicker, much heavier. Uh, And so this curtain we're talking about is the one that kept people uh, out of the most holy place. It was a substantial bit of cloth, about uh, uh, 30 feet wide, about 60 feet high, woven to six inches thick. It was vast and heavy, a lump of cloth. Uh, Many moons ago, when I was a lad, uh, uh, they um, used to have such curtains uh, when you went along to the theatre. I remember, remember there was one down in the Winter Gardens in Margate, that's where I grew up as a lad in the seaside town. And uh, they called it the safety curtain. And what they do is they sort of drop it down before the performance started or perhaps in the interval or at the end. And it was just there to reassure uh, the audience that if anything went wrong, well, this curtain would sort of drop down and it would uh, uh, cause any harm to stay behind the curtain. If there was some emergency on stage or whatever, uh, the audience would be kept safe on the right side of the curtain. Well... It points us towards the curtain in the temple, you see. That was another safety curtain. And it was a permanent fixture this time. And just as well, really, because no one dare enter in behind it, into the most holy place. You can't just wander into God's presence like you might sort of mooch around in a market or whatever. God's presence is a dangerous place for people, sinful people especially. Remember how God addressed Moses the day they met uh, back in Exodus. Uh, God said, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. And you see, that's what this curtain is saying. It's a bit of old covenant safety equipment. It's the equivalent of uh, don't come any closer. uh, Because to enter into that holy place in an unholy, unclean and sinful state would be to bring God's wrath and judgment on that sin and impurity. You could not stand there and live. It would be instant death for any who might try. So the curtain's not there to keep the holy God in, but to keep the sinful people out. The high priest of the temple, he was the only one who uh, ever went in. One man, one visit, once a year. And even then he went on the special day set aside for the forgiveness of sins, the day of atonement. Even then I bet he went in with great fear and trembling. He carried bowls of blood with him, the blood of bulls and goats. They'd been sacrificed to pay for that sin, to avert God's wrath and to pay the price. Where does that all get us? Well, remember Jesus has just died He's just breathed his last breath. And then verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see what Matthew's telling us? This curtain is now redundant. The way into the presence of God is now open for everyone. Forget the high priest. We can all go in. Because the sacrifice has been made. 
Blood has been shed. Sins have been paid for. God's wrath has been averted. And all this is now permanent. The torn curtain means I can now meet with my God whenever, wherever I choose to do that. I can go in safety and peace to that most holy place because my sins have been dealt with and taken from me in the cross. I notice that tear, it's from top to bottom. This is God's doing, not man's. Where the curtain said, keep away. So the tear says, come on in. Come and meet your God. Come and be reconciled with the Father who loves you. And if God says, come in, I'd be a fool to stay away, wouldn't I? Not just a fool, but an ungrateful fool. After all, the door is open into God's presence. The invite has been offered. The curtain is torn. God wants to meet with me. And so if I can go in, I should go in. That's how relationships work, isn't it? Regular contact, regular conversation, time spent together, reading his precious word day by day, speaking to him in prayer. I can go in and so I jolly well should go in. And now if there's a great pile of clutter in your life that's stopping you do that, that's stopping you meeting with this God, then please make a point of dealing with it. Uh, you know, uh, shut off the phone, put the, uh, uh, the iPad somewhere out of sight. Uh, Twitter and Angry Birds are going to have to wait for another day. This is important. Your God wants to meet you. Set an alarm if you have to a few minutes earlier. Get someone to check up on you. Make the effort to make the time. Go and see your God. From the curtain to the cross, here is your peacemaker. Be reconciled. So Matthew's taken us to the cross. We've met our king in this ghastly execution. We've seen our saviour, we've uh, our sin bearer and our peacemaker. We've witnessed the greatest bailout in history. But then what? And now what? Here is your king. So what exactly? Well, as we look at the cross, we've seen the crowd here are a very mixed bunch. But look again, they fall into just two categories. Those who mock Jesus and those who begin to understand him. That word mock, we've seen it already, haven't we? It's what marks out the opposition to Jesus. The soldiers, they mock. Verse 29, they kneel in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. And then, verse 31, after they'd mocked him, their dressing up games were cruel and uh, painful. Pilate's sign, that was mocking Jesus. The charge against him, verse 37, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It's a sign that mocks because those who wrote it didn't believe it for a minute. And we've looked at the passers-by, haven't we? And they're mocking Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. And we've seen already how the chief priests and teachers mocked Jesus. Verse 42, tongue in cheek, they cry, here is the king of Israel. And even those executed alongside Jesus, verse 44, they heap their insults. The place is full of mockers. But yet not everyone mocks. Matthew's been showing us the right response to King Jesus, again, right from the beginning of his book. 
Remember back to Christmas? Some of the first visitors to this newborn king, the Magi, they've understood. Chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. And remember how the disciples met uh, Jesus that night out in the boat on the lake. And Jesus came to them walking on the water and they were terrified. And at the end of that episode, as the storm is calm and the wind dies down, Matthew 10 verse 33, those who were in the boat with Jesus worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. And then in our passage today, we have the centurion. He's begun to get it. This is certainly no ordinary day in the office for him. He's never seen an execution like this one. The darkness, the earthquake, the tombs breaking open, the cry from Jesus. Everything else that happened that day, well, the centurion's response is to confess what he now believes. Verse 54, surely he was the son of God. So you see, we've got a whole mixed up bunch of spectators, but only two camps. We've got those who mock and those who worship. The mockers in one corner and the worshippers in the other. And we need to be careful here, don't we? Because as followers of Jesus, if I line myself up with the worshippers, it's rather easy to feel smug or proud as I look over there and see the mockers. The division is very stark, isn't it? As we look from our corner to the other, uh, nice people on this side, not so nice over there. Both groups, of course, defined by their attitude to Jesus, the leanings of their hearts and the words of their mouths. To mock or to worship depends, doesn't it, what I think of my king. But will we see that Matthew is telling us something here, that by aligning the words of the mockers with the words of Satan, he's showing us, he's underlining to us that this is a spiritual battle. And so there's no place for pride here. Rather, it's heartbreaking, isn't it, to look across at those who mock our king heartbreaking to see how wrong people can be about Jesus you know it's it's absolutely frightening how many funerals I take uh, around in Kilness where the family can't say anything at all about the faith of the person who's died he was baptized they tell me they might even tell me what day and they might even dig out a little dog-eared baptism certificate that they've been keeping since 1923 And then it goes quiet. They've nothing more to say. And you know what? I want to scream at them. That was 80 years ago. 80 years this person has lived ignoring their maker. And family upon family upon family, they know nothing of this Lord Jesus. Nothing of the cross, nothing of this king. It's absolutely desperate. But please, let's not judge people. As we see those who mock. I was once in that corner. I became a Christian when I was 24. And before you were a follower of Jesus. Well you were there too. It's a spiritual battle. Spiritual battles need spiritual responses. The armour of God. The belt of truth. The shield of faith. The sword of the word. And pray. And pray and pray. 
Pray for the mockers you know who don't yet know Christ. A hundred years or so ago, there was a Methodist minister called Samuel Chadwick. Uh, He was no stranger to this part of the world. Indeed, he ministered amongst the mining villages of South Yorkshire. He probably passed through Kilness a few times on his travels, I dare say. He probably preached the word there. I guess some people would have uh, become followers of Jesus uh, under his ministry. You know what he said? Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, from prayerless work, from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. And so will you take Chadwick's advice on this? Do you want to make Satan tremble? Or how about doing something practical? Get yourself a little postcard, something like this. Get the names of your unbelieving friends on one side, perhaps unbelieving family if you have any on the other. Write them down, think about them, but pray for them. Pray that your father would open their eyes to see King Jesus. You see, this is the battle that we face. It's time to go into battle. It's time to get on our knees because this really is our king. Even here at the cross, exercising his authority, that majestic authority through his perfect obedience, he will not buckle. He will not cave in. Even now in his obedience, he reigns supreme over all. And Matthew's shown us what we should do. He's reminded us about the Magi and the disciples in their boat and the centurion, worshipping King Jesus and confessing his name. And so to worship this king is to align myself with his reign and his rule. It's about submitting to his authority and offering him my allegiance. But worshipping this king is also to serve him. And that means to obey him, to receive his directions and act on his instructions. To heed his command to go wherever he shall send me. It's to take seriously, isn't it, the command to go and make disciples, to go and reach others, to find others and to bring them here, back to this cross. See, as Matthew shows us these things, uh, so we are to show them to others, others who don't yet know Jesus as king, others, so many others who need to be brought here to this holy ground, to stand at this cross and to meet this king for themselves. I know that's what you're about here in Forward, and it's certainly what we're about over in Kilnurst, what we're trying to do for God. In our parish, less than 1% would describe themselves as followers of the Lord Jesus. So I'll put it around the other way. Nearly everyone I meet isn't yet following Christ. They're siding with the mockers. There's so much work to do, but you see, that's what we're about At whatever age or stage, seeking the lost and bringing them home. Bringing people to Jesus. Bringing them to the cross. And so with the little ones, we take our toddlers by the hand and we lead them to the cross and we show them Jesus. And we put a hand on the shoulder of our teenagers and we lead them to the cross and we show them Jesus. We engage our adults in groups and courses And we do one-to-ones to to take them to the cross and to show them Jesus. 
and we get along our, uh, alongside our older folk and we take them by the arm and gently we lead them to the cross and we show them Jesus. You see, it doesn't matter if they're kids or teenagers or, or later in life. And we treat everyone the same. We bring them to the cross and we show them Jesus and we say, here is your king. And we invite them to follow him. And we do that because he is our king and this is the work he's given us to do. And we want to obey him. Friends, there is no better way of spending your time on this earth than to lead people to the cross and to show them Jesus. And so with that in mind, can I just wave this around again, this little booklet we've put together uh, to think about coming and helping with the work. We're so excited about this partnership and we'd love you to help us in this great adventure. We'd love to have you work alongside us to seek out the lost and to bring them home. And even if that's not you, would you do that here? Would you get alongside those you know? And would you bring them to the cross and show them Jesus? And we've been praying that God would send out more workers. And maybe it is you that God is wanting to send. But for now, will you take some time in this week, this holy week, to take in the cross? Will you see there your saviour, your sin bearer, your peacemaker? And as you meet your king, will you resolve to play your part in bringing others here back to this cross so that they too might see Jesus and meet their king? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you that there we see our saviour, we see our sin bearer, and we see our peacemaker. Thank you that on that cross we see our king. And we pray, Lord, would you raise us up from our apathy and would you help us to bring others here to this most holy place to see the Lord Jesus, and here to meet their King. Amen.